0: Good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? You cold? I'm freezing. The heat, I even turned the heat up in here and I'm still cold, but it is what it is. So uh, a good friend of mine before service here asked me if, uh, he said, you got any Browns jokes? He said, because it's, it's too soon. <laughs> and I don't. I just want to reiterate the fact that isn't it great that our hope is in Jesus and not in the Cleveland Browns? <laughs> I literally I wasn't going to say anything, Kyle, but you, you made me do it, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hey, if you're a fan of mystery novels or CSI TV shows or that kind of thing, right? Solving a mystery, hunting for clues, putting a sleuth hat on. Anybody seen the, uh, uh, the Sherlock show on PBS? It's pretty good. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of mystery. And as I was studying for the text today, it kind of hit me that... I had to do a little bit more digging uh, than, than I usually do. Uh, Jesus is he's going to drop some clues this morning, and it's a little cryptic. And so if, if you like that kind of thing, uh, I hope you're excited because that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be detectives to kind of unearth some of the clues that Jesus is dropping theologically. And I was, as I was writing, I realized that especially early on in Jesus' ministry, he did this a lot. He taught in parables. He said kind of cryptic things. And unless you were really interested, right, he played his cards close to his, his chest. Unless you were really interested, you'd just be like, this guy, who, who is he? He's a, he's a man of mystery. We don't know what to make of him. But if you stayed with Jesus, if you do what Philip tells Nathaniel to do, as we will read in our text, as come and see and investigate the clues of Jesus, you will find that he will... He will meet you in a very, very personal way. But it's not always super clear. It's not always, our faith is not always without frustration, right? And so I wanted to, before we get into the text, and we will, I promise, we'll get to the text, but before we do that, I want to do a show of hands here this morning. How many of you have ever been frustrated as you've read your Bibles? How many? Keep your hand up. How many? Okay. Some of you. Some of you are lying, right? Some of you have been frustrated. All right, keep your hand up. You've been frustrated. How many of you have ever been confused with the Lord before? Felt like he's like kind of absent, kind of not around. All right, I want everybody to kind of look around here and see. You guys aren't keeping your hands up. You're You're not working with me, right? You get my point. We are in good company. We are in good, good company. You're not alone if you've ever been frustrated in your faith. You're not alone if you've ever been confused when reading scripture or or dealing with things of faith or, or trying to have a relationship with the Lord. It can be frustrating at times. And while I do believe that God has made the things of salvation clear and plain enough so that even a child can come to faith, right? He tells us that. He tells us that we need to have the faith of a child. That means that the things of salvation, the main and plain things within the Scripture that we need to know to be saved, it's it's plain, it's clear, it's easy enough so not a caveman can do it, but a child can do it, right? You've seen the commercials recently. <laughs> right? Even a child can do it. And I, for one, am very thankful for that. Sometimes I think that as believers, and, and I, I don't know, I could be a part of the problem in this, sometimes I think we create this idea that for you to be a follower of Jesus, you have to have more degrees than Fahrenheit, right? You gotta go to, to master's degrees and get all of your, your, all of your, no Hebrew and Greek and all of this stuff, and that's helpful, but it's not necessary. Why? Because even a child can come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us that. And while that's true, I also want to acknowledge this morning that sometimes there are things in theology, there are things about Jesus and God that aren't always clear and aren't always as simple as the childlike things of the faith. You say, well, well, careful, Levi. I'm like, okay, but you're not alone in in thinking this way. And in fact, it's scriptural. The apostle Peter, as in one of Jesus' first 12 disciples, he tells us, he felt similarly about some things in Scripture. He writes in 2 Peter 3.16, he says some of the things that Paul writes, Paul wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. Some of the things that Paul writes in his letters, he says, are hard to understand. They're difficult. It's hard for me to even wrap my head around some of the things that he's saying. And people that don't do the work to investigate the, the finer points of theology said they twist and they manipulate to make Paul say things that he didn't say. And so I want you to know, as we look around and hold up our hands, we say, man, sometimes the things of faith are frustrating, and we look to the Scriptures and realize even the Apostle Peter agrees with us. So we're, we're in good company here. And along these same lines, as I was thinking about this, prepping for this, this chat with y'all, I, I wondered, I, I can't be alone in, in thinking about the frustrating things of faith and, and why, why sometimes God makes belief so hard, right? Have you ever wondered... Why, why doesn't Jesus just like write the truth in the sky? He absolutely could. We know he's, he's the creator God. He can do whatever he wants. Why doesn't he make believing in him more clear? More like, why doesn't he take a more direct repro- approach with us as human beings? Why does God seem so mysterious? Why does he seem to cloak his identity so much? Why doesn't he make it so obvious? I think it's for two reasons. The first one is, is kind of pragmatic. The first reason I think that God doesn't take that direct approach and like just paint it in the sky miraculously is because it simply wouldn't work. It wouldn't work, right? I mean, it's not like God has never done miracles on the earth before. He came to to Moses in the burning bush. He sent the plagues on Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He had the earth open up and swallow people at one moment. That happened because they were rebellious. He's like, all right, done with you. Swallowing you up with the earth. I mean, he's healed people countless times in the New Testament. Raised Lazarus from the dead. And what about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Jesus was dead in a grave for three days and then rose to new life. And think specifically about that miracle, that direct approach from the Lord what did the religious leaders do immediately after that happened they covered it up they lied about it they explained it away you see our God has and does occasionally take the direct approach with us But if if that is the only thing that our faith is built upon, then we'll need a steady diet of miracles to keep happening to sustain our faith and chances are we'll explain it away. Oh, that was something else, right? We can explain or explain away pretty much whatever we want. The Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all else. Not only that, Satan exists and he clouds the hearts and minds of Men and women who don't want to believe. And so, God has and does work through miracles at times, but even if he always did that, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough. So that's the first reason. Miracles in the direct approach would not be enough. The other reason is a little bit more philosophical. Faith and love require a degree of hiddenness and mystery for them to be authentic. For love to be authentic, it can't be forced and it can't be coerced. For faith and love to be genuine, for it to be real, there has to be some level of choice in the matter. And so God, God wanting a relationship, wanting genuine love from us, right? He wants faith and, and love from responsible people. He does not want behavior, forced behavior from robots, because of that, being an all-powerful, all-knowing, supreme being, he has to hide himself a little bit to create enough room and space in our lives for us to be able to choose him. So God is he's obvious, enough, obvious enough in our world so that those who want to believe, who want to see and know the Lord, they can, but he's also hidden enough mysterious enough, cloaked enough, so that those who want nothing to do with him can avoid him all together. All this to say, sometimes discovering the things of God, it takes some investigation on our part. Sometimes God speaks cloaked in clues that require us to do some digging. And when God came in the flesh as Jesus Christ, he did this a lot. In fact, This is precisely what we find him doing this morning as we open up to John chapter 1. And so I'd ask that you do that. Open your Bibles, turn or swipe there. John 1. We'll read together. We can check it out together and see if we can piece together the clues of Jesus that he gives us regarding the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? So let's read it together. John 1, starting in verse 43. John writes, The next day... When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right, we're going we're to kind of mosey our way through the text this morning. I want you to go back up to verse 43. I want to point out something to you there. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is looking for followers. He's looking for followers. He wasn't, as we said last week, just a good teacher. He's not just a good teacher that we can take what we like from and then kind of toss out the rest. That's not, Jesus isn't like, hey, I hope you think that I'm a wise guy or I hope you think that I'm a good teacher. No, he's looking for people to follow him, to go all in. He's looking for people that will sell everything they have, leave their life behind, and follow him for sellouts, right? He's looking for followers, Not fans. People who are sold out for him. The first disciples show us what this looks like. They left their families. They left their way of life behind. They left everything behind. Why? To follow Jesus. To go where he went. To do what he said. Always. In every way. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for church attenders. He's looking for followers. Those who know and love him. Go where he goes. Do what he says. The disciples show us what faith looks like. In our text this morning, we're introduced to two of these such followers: Philip and Nathaniel. So if Jesus, he sets out looking for followers and he comes across Philip and Nathaniel, who are quite receptive to that call. Hey, come follow me. Philip and Nathaniel do. Why is that? What makes them receptive? I want you to look with me at the text. When we meet Philip and Nathaniel, we find that they lived with an expectation to see God's promises come true they were seekers they believed there was a God and that they could know him that he had made promises which they were looking for to come true in their lives they believed that God was active that he was on the earth and as such they're looking for his activity verse 45 tells us as much right Philip tells Nathaniel he said hey We have found, we've been searching and we have found the one Moses wrote about. We know the Old Testament. We know the promises of God. We believe God is going to make good on his word. And so we're actively seeking for him to do that in our life. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. We found what God promised. We've been looking for God and his activity and we've found it. Now listen, church, as I've already said, I understand that God's actions upon the earth are rarely objectively obvious, right? He's not riding in big clouds up in the sky. Oh, he doesn't always do that. I get that sometimes it feels as if God is completely absent from your life and from our world. Again, it's because God is secreted enough, he's mysterious enough for people who want to avoid him that they can. But our God is never altogether absent from our world. He's not. For one, he's chosen, or he's told us that the heavens declare his majesty. He's told us countless times in his word that if you look at creation, you will see God's fingerprints all over it. If you look for it, it can be found. More than that, he has and continues to interact with those who are willing and searching. This is why we want you to make friends here. Because if you get to know the people of God who are here at Crossroads Church, they will tell you story after story, not just Bible verses, but how God speaks to them regularly in sometimes mysterious ways that make us wonder, was that God? Was that the burrito that I ate last night? Right? That's our job. We're, we're, we're to discern that by testing things against Scripture. But I know enough people and I know enough of your stories to know that God is alive and He is active and He is speaking today through His Word primarily, but also subjectively in our feelings and emotions and through dreams and visions and all kinds of awesome things. God is alive. He is active. And He's promised us so many good things. He's promised that He will never leave you nor forsake you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's promised that for those who ask, who seek, and knock, he says the door will be opened. What does that mean? It means that if you seek for the Lord, you will be found by him. You will find him. You see, God will not force himself upon you or anyone else. Again, he's hidden enough so as not to force anyone to believe, but he's also promised to be knowable for those who seek his face. And here this morning in our text, we see two gentlemen that are doing just that. Nathanael and Philip are receptive to the call of Jesus to follow him because they're seeking. They are seeking to know God and see his fulfillment of his promises in our world, in their lives. Are you? Are you seeking? Are you open to seeing God's activity, or are you so cynical and snide about life and about God that even if he showed up, you would just explain it away? If that's you, may I encourage you to go check out, I believe it's Mark 9. There's a gentleman who comes to Jesus because he's heard the mysteries of this man who can heal. and He has a sick child who's demon-possessed, and this, this child is being thrown into the water to be drowned or into fire, having these seizures, and The man says, he's got a demon, and Jesus, if you can, would you heal him? I think you can. And Jesus says, if I can. He says, anything is possible for those who believe. If you are one of those cynical people that questions whether or not God is real, you have doubts, that's okay. I'm glad that you're here. You're welcome here. This is a safe place to ask questions. But let me encourage you to pray what the man in Mark 9 prays. Lord, I want to believe. I believe. I want to believe. Help me with my unbelief. If you will pray that, if you will seek like that, acknowledging your doubts, your fears, your confusions, your frustrations, you can acknowledge all of that before the Lord. But don't stop there. Press into desire. Lord, here's how I feel. But here's, here's what I want. I want to trust in you. I want to believe in you. Help me with my unbelief. If you do that, friend, you will encounter the risen Lord. I promise. Jesus promises. Ask, seek, knock. And I'll open that door. I will find you, he says. Philip and Nathaniel show us who can expect to be found by the king. It's those who seek God with all their hearts. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen: If you seek me, you will find me when you seek for me with all your heart. Psalm one forty five eighteen: The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So you don't have to bury your feelings. You don't have to bury your confusion or your doubt or your frustration. We call on the Lord in truth. Lord, here's how I feel. I don't want to feel this way. I want to walk in faith. I don't want to have doubt. Help my unbelief. If you do this, the Lord will be found by you. You will find him. He'll find you. But I don't want to just make that into like some cliche. It's not always straightforward. Nathaniel shows us that even if we have the heart of a seeker, faith may not always come to us easily. Look at his first thought when Philip tells him, hey, we found the one we're following. We found the one we've been seeking for. We found him. We found the promised king, Jesus of Nazareth. Was Philip's, or Nathanael's first response. Nazareth, can anything good come from that dump? Right? Can anything good come from there? And before we criticize Nathanael too harshly, this is actually a very educated reaction. You see, nowhere in the Old Testament, all the prophecies, the promises about the king and and the Messiah, nowhere in the Old Testament does it mention Nazareth. Bethlehem? Sure. Judea? Yes. Jerusalem? Absolutely. But nowhere does God mention Nazareth. And so when Nathaniel hears this, right, his protest is not one of ignorance. It's an informed one. He knows God's word. And because of the knowledge that he has of God's word, he has limited limited God in a certain way that God has not limited himself. I think that's a very instructive word for us as we look further into what it means to follow Jesus. Each and every one of us has baggage. Each and every one of us has preconceived notions. And some of that comes from study from education, from being informed, right? We grew up in this certain denomination and here's how we've interpreted the scriptures this way or we've went to Bible college and studied Greek and this is how we've understood this and, and we come and we come kind of boxed in with certain different denominational baggage and information that we come carrying to the scriptures. Some of it, some of our baggage comes from wounds, people of the church treated us this way i had a pastor do this that or the other thing and now i think this about god right other things we've been informed from the school of life so we come to the scriptures we come to the lord with all of this extra baggage some of it's from education some of it's from wounds of our past some of it's from the school of life i had a professor in college that used to say atheists aren't born they're made they're made his point was that they're made through their experiences And so, as we seek to follow Jesus and we hear his call upon our life to do so, we should not be surprised to find hurts and hang-ups along our journey into faith. We should not be uh, surprised to find hurts and hang-ups that make our, our journey in faith difficult sometimes. And we all must be very careful not to let our educated ideas or our wounds from the past put God into a box that he has not put himself into. Right? See, what do you mean by that? Well, God says, I cannot tell a lie. So if God speaks, a box we can put him in, it's going to be true. Right? But when we're dealing with revelation and how he speaks to each of us, you you get my point. We must be careful not to put God in a box that he has not put himself in. Nathanael here has a hang-up. Philip, being a shrewd man, he doesn't engage in the objection. But rather, he simply invites Nathaniel to come and see for himself, which I just love. I love. In our world of soapboxes and social media, we're getting pretty good at arguing with one another, especially about things of faith, right? I love what Nathaniel does here, or Philip does here with Nathaniel. He does not enter into an argument and like dissect all of the finer points of theology. He just simply says... Come and see. You come and meet Jesus for yourself. Church, if you argue someone into Jesus, they can be argued out of Jesus. Faith is reasonable. And there is plenty of evidence to believe in Christ. Absolutely. The Lord doesn't ask us to turn our brain off when we become believers. There's plenty of evidence for it. But the goal, the goal for us as evangelists, helping people Know and love Jesus is not to make a sound argument. It's to introduce them to the risen Christ so that they might have a relationship with him. See, Philip shows us the best defense for our faith. Come and see. Come and see, friend. Come and see Jesus for yourself. You come and meet him for yourself. Philip knows if you meet him, you're going to understand. You're going to want to follow him. Just come and see. And you might be thinking, the cynical in here this morning, which I would lump myself into that category, you might be thinking, well, isn't that nice for Philip and Nathaniel? They did get to go come and see Jesus, right? In the flesh. They got to see the miracles. They got to hear the preaching. Isn't that nice? I hear you. I get it. We cannot invite people to come and see Jesus the way that Philip and Nathanael did. But, if you know enough of the words of Jesus, maybe you'll remember that Christ actually told us it's better for him to go than for him to stay physically upon this earth. Why? Because he said, I'll send my spirit into each and every person that knows me and loves me. And send his spirit he did, church. Each and every Christian, inside each of every believer this morning, exists the spirit of the risen Christ. This means that while we can't invite people to come and see Jesus in the same way that Philip and Nathaniel did, we can nevertheless invite people to come and see Jesus in us and in our group. Come and see. Come and see Jesus in my church family, friend. Come and see, right? come and see. Listen, if you look at my life, I'm speaking for all of us now, not just Levi, but if you, look at, if you look at my life, I'm not perfect, but if you've seen anything praiseworthy, anything excellent, anything good, you've seen a little bit of Jesus. Because it ain't me. It's the risen Lord. It's the Spirit of Christ working in me. He lives in me. And the good that comes out of me, that is him. Folks, this is both helpful and challenging. It's helpful in that the church is to be the tangible presence of God on earth. That's helpful, right? That we are the physical hands and feet of Jesus to our world. We are the way that people experience God. That's helpful. We can make God real to people. But it's also challenging, isn't it? How well are we displaying who Jesus is as individuals? How well are we displaying who Jesus is as a congregation? It won't always be perfect, but hopefully, as we invite people to come and see, what they see is more and more of Jesus Christ. And so, Nathaniel, he's got some hang-ups, but rather than let what he thought he knew or what he heard or what he read get the best of him, he determines to go investigate Jesus for himself. Which again, in a world of information, it's very easy to read headlines on social media and make quick snapshot decisions. Especially about Christians and the church and Jesus. But can I invite you to be like Nathaniel? Come and see. You go and see for yourself. Nathaniel goes and Jesus shows us what we can expect to find if we will come and see too. If you go in search of Jesus, Jesus shows us that he will find you. He will find you and meet you where you are and give you enough to inspire faith in him. Look at verses 47 through 51. Nathanael goes in search of Jesus and he finds that Jesus already knows him. (laughs) Jesus has already seen him before Nathanael even knew what to look for. Jesus saw. He knew. Jesus sees Nathaniel from a ways off, and he makes a statement about the man's character. He says, here, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And then he goes on to tell Nathaniel that not only does he have supernatural knowledge of him and insight into his character, but that Nathanael will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And this is where, if you brought your sleuth cap out or magnifying glass, this is where we need to be a little bit of detectives. What's going on here? Jesus is being a little cryptic, right? He's dropping clues that you'll only understand if you come and see with me. We as the reader are left wondering, what's happening here? As Nathaniel is switching so quickly from skepticism to going all in on Jesus. Something goes, something's going on, but, but what? What is happening? Well, for starters... Jesus is using a very old but familiar story in this text. Nathanael, being a good Israelite, a good Jewish boy, he would have known these illusions, these clues that he's dropping, it would have instantly brought this to his memory. Jesus references Nathanael's character, of him being a true Israelite, first clue. Second one, a true Israelite with no deceit, that's the second clue. First clue, Israelite, no deceit, second clue. That sounds like a man I've read about before. Third clue. You'll see angels ascending and descending. Third clue. It tips Jesus' hand. He's referring to a story that happens in Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, we meet a man named Jacob who has a dream from God. Again, if you were a good Jew, you would have known this story. And if you go read the story of Jacob for yourself in Genesis, you will quickly discover that Jacob is a shady character. He starts out that way. His name actually means uh, deceiver. That's what his, his mom's like, deceiver, that's what I'm going to call you. And he lives up to his name, <laughs> Jacob, right? He lives up to his name. And all throughout his entire life, he's a trickster, a man of deceit. He tricks his brother out of his birthright. It's like this whole soup thing, Right? He deceives with soup. You can go read it. You're like, what's he talking about? Go read it. It's awesome. It's not awesome, but it's it's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. He deceives his brother once again out of his father's blessing with some goat hair and some stuff. It's, it's, It's crazy. He is a deceiver. Deception marks Jacob everywhere he goes. And yet, in Genesis 28, we discover that God chooses him despite all of his sins and brokenness, God still, he has a plan for Jacob and he's going to encounter him in a very personal personal way. When we get to Genesis chapter 28, while Jacob is on his way to find his wife was a whole nother story. He stops for the night to sleep and God comes to him in a dream. And Jacob sees in this dream, he sees a ladder connecting heaven and earth and angels ascending and descending on this ladder and God's at the top. And then Jacob hears God reaffirm a promise that God had made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and to Jacob's father, Isaac. God promises Jacob, he says, "I, In the same way I promised Abraham, your, great-grand- or your grandfather, in the same way I promised your father, Isaac, to make them into a great nation and to bless all of the world through your descendants, I'm making that promise as well to you. You will become a great nation, I will be your God, I will protect you, I will go with you, and your people will bless the entire world. God reaffirms what we scholars like to call the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we need to understand two things to really get what's happening in this dream. The first thing is this. Up to this point in Genesis, Jacob has heard stories of God from his grandpa and his dad. He's heard stories of the promise but up until this point, God has never spoken to Jacob himself. The first record we have of God actually showing up for Jacob and reaffirming the promise and the covenant we find here in Genesis 28. Until Genesis 28, there is no record that Jacob has ever heard or experienced God in a direct way like his grandpa or father had. That's significant. The other thing that is significant from this story is what Jacob does and says after he has this dream. Upon waking up from his dream, he says, surely God was here and I didn't even recognize it. He wasn't seeking. He didn't notice. Surely God was here and I didn't even notice. Then, once he realizes after the dream... He sets up an altar, he some less like little stones, he piles them up to kind of commemorate the place, pours some oil on it. he calls the place Bethel or Bethel. He says, "This is Bethel, the house of God, or the gateway of heaven he says if if God protects him and goes with him from now on, from now on, the Lord will be his God. This leaves the reader to conclude that up to this point. Apparently, Jacob hadn't settled the matter in his mind as to who his God was going to be. Honestly, this lines up with his actions prior to this, right? If you follow the storyline of Jacob, he was a conniving shyster of a man. Time and time again, we see that he is more quick to lie and cheat in order to get ahead rather than trust God and live with honesty and integrity. And so I think if we piece these clues together, I think God is doing two things in this dream. He's reminding Jacob that while sometimes God's actions may be invisible and mysterious or not easily recognized or seen, he's reminding Jacob that he is indeed active in in this world, right? The image of the ladder connecting heaven and earth with angels going up and down on it. That's God saying, I'm here and I'm active. Even though you can't always see me, I am very active in this world. I care deeply about it. I'm orchestrating all things. I'm active. And then God goes on and he affirms the covenant promise to Abraham. And I think he does this to remind Jacob that God sees him, that God has not forgotten him, that God does have a plan for his his life. Even though he can't always see God's activity, God does see him. God does know him. Nathanael would have known this story. And now, in John's Gospel, we see Jesus drawing upon this story with Nathanael, which is cryptic unless you know the story. It's packed with meaning. Essentially, Jesus is telling Nathanael, Nathanael, I am the ladder in Jacob's dream. I am the ladder upon whom you will see angels ascending and descending. I am the The person that you will see God's work most definitively defined and active in this world. Jesus is saying, I am the new and better Bethel. I am the house of God. I am the gateway to heaven. That's me. That's me. Jesus is God's direct activity upon the world. And Nathanael can expect to see great revelation and work in and through the person of Jesus Christ which is an astonishing theological statement. But before Jesus drops this theological clue, Nathanael is already all in on Jesus, which I think is incredibly interesting. Why? It's because Jesus proves to Nathanael that he is a personal God who takes personal interest in each and every one of his people. Before dro- or before Jesus drops the loaded theology upon Nathaniel, he first creates a, desi- a desire in Nathaniel to be known personally in relationship. Right? Nathaniel is surprised by Jesus' statement about his character. Jesus shows up and he's like, "Hey, I see you. You're an Israelite in which there is no deceit." Which is to Nathaniel's like, "Bro, I've never met you. Like, you don't know me. Like, how do you know anything about my character?" And then Jesus goes on and he says, Before Philip called you, I saw you under a fig tree. Now, if you've seen The Chosen, I'll acknowledge what they do with this story is not scriptural. In that, we have no documented scripture that says this is what happened. But Nathanael's reaction to Jesus' statement thinks it's entirely plausible that what the director of The Chosen does and the creative license that he takes is Very studious and highly plausible. If you were to watch the show, we get to see Nathaniel before this moment. And in the show, he's an architect. And he says, I want to build cathedrals for the Lord and places of worship for for God, for my people to worship God. And I want him to be beautiful and all of this. And so he gets this contract and he's having this project and the entire facility just blows up. It falls down and it's a huge thing and he gets fired. And we get a picture of Nathaniel out under a fig tree studying scriptures, which actually is what the scribes used to do. Go out under a fig tree in the shade and study the scriptures and, and describe stuff. So that part of the story in The Chosen is like even historical. So we see nathaniel he's out under the fig tree after his life is just completely blown up. Everything he thought God was calling him into his entire life, it's a train wreck. And we get a picture of Nathaniel out there under the fig tree studying the word, looking for answers, which... Good for you. And crying out to God in relationship. God, I was doing this for you, he says. What the heck? You let, my life is, it's a train wreck. Where are you? And what does he hear under that fig tree? Silence. Nothing. He's alone with his thoughts. God is seemingly absent and here's why I think what the chosen did is very plausible just like Jacob felt lost and alone having to rely on deception to get ahead in life he wondered if God if the God of his father and grandpa saw him or was active in his life Nathaniel has a similar moment and now rather than send a dream like God did for Jacob God sends his son to Nathaniel to remind Nathaniel That he is seen by his maker. That his maker is still very much active in our world. Right? Jesus shows up and he said, Hey, Nathaniel, when you were crying out to God, I heard you. I saw you. I am active. I love you. I know you. Trust me. And then we see the switch. Something personal had to happen for Nathaniel to make that switch. Something incredibly personal. There's no way. His initial response is, you're the son of God. How could you make that switch? Church, if you would come and see this Jesus, he will do the same for you. I want to conclude this morning by sharing a story that is very personal to me. It's about, it's about why I'm a pastor. It has to do with my call into ministry. And it's, it's a story that, that I want to share because I don't, I don't want to put God in a box. And I don't want you to put God in a box and say, hey, unless I have a story like Nathaniel or Levi, then, then that's not me. Remember, God speaks to us in lots of different ways. So I don't, I don't want to put God in a box and say that your experience has to be my experience. But I do want to create an expectation in you to hear, from the, to hear from the God of the Bible in personal ways. He's not going to say anything that he hasn't already said or something that contradicts what he said in his word. But he can speak to us personally, like he does to Nathaniel. He did for me, just once. When I was in high school, I started considering a call to ministry when I was a junior. And I had an opportunity to preach at my local church, which I was incredibly nervous about ill-prepared for, had some people help me a little bit, but I found myself on a Friday night studying commentaries, which is what every junior in high school wants to be doing. (laughs) (laughs) Even nerdy ones like me, not, not into that, right? I also have a twin brother. Logan was out with our friends having a good time, and I was at home preparing for Sunday's message with my nose in a book, and I was pretty ticked off about it. I was frustrated. I was having a little Eeyore pity party, right? My life stinks. uh, Right? And I was giving God the business. Not out loud, right? Because we have faith. I'm going to be in a ministry, and I don't grumble and complain, right? So I wasn't doing it out loud, but in here, whoo, it was bad. I was giving the Lord the business. Like, God, are you serious? I'm doing this for you, and I've been working all week, and I don't have this stupid message together. I don't know what I'm doing. My brother's out having a good time with all my friends, and I'm reading a stupid book. Cool. Thanks. This is horrible. I hate this, right? What well, is me. <laughs> Super dramatic as a junior in high school. Fast forward, I delivered the message. I, it was fine. I, it was probably not that great if we go listen to it. It was my first time. But uh, I think I had an illustration about God being a GPS or something for our life. Again, not, not my best work. <laughs> Anyways, it was fine. It was fine, but I was still kind of harboring that. Like, Lord, is this going to be my life? Because if it is, like, I don't really know if I, I, I want to do this. Two weeks later, we go on a missions trip to Appalachian Mountains. So we're out there cleaning homes and, I don't know, doing construction and all of this stuff. Um, and one of the nights, one of the guys that was at the guest house was going to come and speak to us. His name was Randy Green. Never met him before in my life. Nice guy. Good old boy. West Virginia, right? We get there, he's like going to give us a talk. And before he starts his talk, he said, hey listen, I'm going to preach, but before I do that, I just really feel like the Holy Spirit has a word for a couple people in this room. And he said, there's a couple of you kids that are considering ministry, and I want you to know that God is calling you into it, and you should follow him. And I don't know what he preached on after that, because I couldn't stop thinking about what he just said. And so I find this guy afterwards, and I walk up to him, and I said, hey man, Um, I'm one of those kids. And he said, yeah, you are, Levi. I'd not met him, never introduced myself, and he called me by my name. He said, you are, Levi. He said, here's what the Lord wants you to know. He said, there's going to be times in your life where you're being doing the Lord's work and you're going to be ticked because your friends are off having a good time. And God wants wants you to know that he sees you and then he knows that it's frustrating. I can't even tell without getting emotional. This is like twenty years ago. He knows that it's frustrating, but he wants you to know that he is calling you and that you're doing his work and that there will be time for all of that other stuff later. And this dude has got my attention, right? Why? Because I had never told a soul that but the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he went on to tell me some more stuff about how to stay close to the Lord and what the Lord's going to require from me and what my ministry is going to look like and all of that, which I journaled and I treasure in my heart. Here's my point. God has a calling for you. It may not be to ministry on a vocational sense, but it is to ministry on some sense. And it is to, I don't know what, To make beautiful things and to serve this world and to love people and be hospitable. I don't know what your calling is, but the Lord Jesus has one for you. And if you'll seek Him out, He will let you know what it is. You will encounter Him. Come and see, church. That's what I have to say to you. Come and see. Come and see the clues of Christ. And if you would, Jesus will find you and he will show you that there is no one else more worth following than him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a God who is deeply personal. You are not a God who winds up the watch of the world and then stands back and just lets it roll. You are a God who is intimately acquainted with, with each and every person, and each and every being, animal, everything, Lord, you've created. You are deeply aware of it, and you love it, and you love us more than all the rest. I pray, Father, that you would cut through our cynical hearts this morning, that you would give us a desire to know you, We like to think we're reasonable beings, that if we could just make a solid case, then then we would believe. But the reality is that we lead with our passions and and desires first. And so, Father, meet us there. Even if we don't know you yet, help us want to. And, Father, as you soften our hearts to know you, I pray that each and every one of us would encounter you in real and personal ways through the power of your Spirit. Send dreams and visions. Send prophetic words and utterances Make your scripture come alive to our hearts. Illuminate it as you promised you would by the power of your spirit, Lord Jesus, so that we would not be a a people that worship a dead book, but we would be a people that worship a living God who's given us a book about him. Guide us to yourself, Lord, through your people, through your creation, through your revelation in your word, so that we might know and love you and help others do as well.